Hello. Welcome to Matt's Music Class. My name is Matthew Dayton, and this is a podcast about learning to understand music. Now, I'm a musician and composer and a music teacher, so I'm pretty familiar with the many excellent books and lectures on music appreciation, history, and theory out there. My personal favorites include Aaron Copeland's book, What to Listen for in Music. I'm also a big fan of Rob Capowell's book, All You Have to Do is Listen as well as his radio program, What Makes It Great. And for video or audio lectures, Leonard Bernstein's classic series of young people's concerts is great. And Robert Greensburg's courses for the teaching company, which I think they're called The Great Courses now, on how to listen to and understand classical music is supremely erudite, informative, and entertaining. So in light of all that great stuff, the question you might ask is, why listen to this podcast? And why make a podcast on this topic at all, when it's been done so well by such great musician communicators? Well, because there is something that I've become pretty good at that I've never seen available, at least not to audiences of grown-ups, and that is starting from the beginning and focusing on the most fundamental inner mechanics of how music does what it does. So the lessons I've made here are modeled on the lessons and exercises that I spent many years testing and refining when I taught general music in an elementary school. I was responsible for guiding my students to understand the musical concepts and tools fundamental to all kinds of music, from the time they entered kindergarten, when they were about five years old, until they finished fifth grade, when they were about 11 years old. It was a lot of fun, and there is a certain sense of wonder that I think naturally comes with just working with kids and watching them grow from little aliens into actual persons. But the most fun and interesting part of my job was designing activities and games that even these little people, who are literally starting from scratch, can quickly learn and reflect on to develop a rather sophisticated musical vocabulary. And when on occasion other adults, like parents or other teachers, would have a chance to watch my teaching, they consistently gave me feedback that has convinced me that there is a large number of people out there who were either never taught these fundamental music concepts, which I was imparting to my students and which really are a necessary first step to making meaning from hearing music, or were only taught music as children and were never exposed to these concepts again. To illustrate this point, I came up with a little thought experiment, so try this. Imagine a world exactly like ours, except without any alcohol. This experiment should only be run by people over 21 or 18, depending on where you live. So, in this world, there is no word for alcoholic beverages, wine or beer. No one has ever been tipsy or drunk. Social awkwardness is probably rampant. And now imagine, if you grew up in this world, and were magically confronted with a couple of glasses of exceptionally high-quality wine, which you were then helplessly compelled to drink. Yeah, I know, it's a pretty preposterous and contrived situation, but bear with me. Imagine how you would experience the taste of the wine. I think you'd probably describe it as sour, bitter, and gross. Remember the first time you tasted wine in the real world? But it's even worse in this no-alcohol world, because nobody even has the concept of an acquired taste for wine. No one's ever had anything like it. But remember, you're forced to drink two glasses of this awful stuff right in a row. Once you finish and rinse the taste out of your mouth, you would almost certainly notice a pleasant bit of lightheadedness, a compulsion to be talkative, cheerful, and funny. You'd magically become the life of the party. Now back to our world. When a true wine connoisseur, and let's assume just for the sake of argument that such things really do exist and they aren't all just pretentious fops, A true connoisseur drinks those same glasses of wine, gets just as tipsy by the end, but she also happens to be able to savor a huge array of different flavors unfolding moment by moment with every sip. The difference between you and the connoisseur is not one of physiology or intellectual capacity, it's just one of vocabulary and semantics. It's not that wine lovers don't taste the sour and bitter flavors of the alcohol, but they're lucky, and we're lucky, that their conceptual knowledge includes the other flavors hidden in the wine, once you acquire the taste for it, and are brought into high relief by the alcohol. One of the most entertaining discoveries of psychology and cognitive science is that your brain actually doesn't notice something that it doesn't expect to be there, or that it expects not to be there. So if you don't have a good idea of what flavors to look for when you drink wine, they just won't show up in your experience. How does this relate to music? Well. It seems to me that many people in our world are experiencing music from the same position as the no-alcohol world's wine drinker. They can easily notice themselves responding emotionally to music. That's just how music affects us on a physiological level. But they have no conceptual vocabulary for understanding how music is doing its thing, 
or why they respond to that thing as they do. It's as mysterious as the unfortunate wine drinker's tipsiness. Appreciating the flavors in the wine doesn't really have any effect on appreciating the alcohol's intoxicating effects on your body, but if all you get from drinking wine is intoxication, when there is, in principle at least, a much richer experience to be had by drinking the same wine but also having an aesthetic experience with the flavors, then just drinking wine to get drunk seems like a pretty shallow thing to do. So is everybody who loves music but isn't a musician simply listening to music for its mysterious intoxicating effects? Not necessarily. Because remember, music more often than not has words that go with it. The purely musical meaning to be found in music, quite apart from the words, is something that most people don't have the thinking tools to notice and fully appreciate, but if you speak the language of the words, the meaning there is something you've had lots of practice at capturing. I would wager this is why music with words will always be more popular than music without words. So many more people can understand the meaning of the words, which appreciation just enriches the primal emotional responses to musical gestures and makes the whole listening experience more profound. But even if you feel like music without words is a complete mystery to you, and you've always been told that you can't sing and are tone deaf and blah 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 blah, you probably still have an inkling that there is some meaning to be found in just the music itself, and if you could capture and savor that meaning in addition to the meaning of the words and the emotional pull of both, how much would that increase the quality of your musical experiences? How much would that increase the quality of your life? And what if you're a seasoned musician, or you write music reviews for a living? Well, I was a pretty decent musician before I started teaching kids this stuff, and in my experience, really spending time with and delving into the most fundamental and basic musical concepts had a surprisingly heightening effect on my musical sensitivity, especially in my performing, but also in how I wrote music. And the simple beauty of just crystallizing the most basic elements in music and listening to even pieces I had studied in my college music theory courses through that simple but profound lens, it kind of blew my mind. So my goal with these lessons is to prepare you to listen to any music, words or no words, new or old, simple or complex, familiar or foreign to you, anything at all, with this simple but mind-blowing lens. Once you've got these basics, you can get so much more out of a music appreciation course or book, like the ones by Rob Capello or Robert Greenberg, and you might discover what style of music really speaks to you that you never would have listened to before. Okay, so understanding the fundamentals of music. Where to begin? Well, by nature, I seem to have a strongly philosophical bent, so I like to start with a big, simple question. What is music? It's a question that can have many different but equally good answers depending on the context, but for this context, I'm going to steal Robert Greenberg's definition of music because it's super broad, but it focuses on the two ingredients which we can put a magnifying glass to and it becomes a great way into the inner mechanics of music. He says music is, quote, sound in time or time defined by sound. And he always repeats the important definitions, quote, sound in time or time defined by sound. So does that mean that whenever you have sound and time, which seems like all the time here on Earth anyway, you have music? Mm, I think it means you potentially have music. But for a mind to perceive the music, and you can debate whether the perceiving is a necessary third ingredient for music to exist, like really exist, but it doesn't really matter for my purposes. To perceive music, I think a mind probably has to generate a corresponding virtual expression or gesture representing that sound in time, which then in turn generates a feeling in your body. I don't think this musical image, which is the mind's representation of the sound in time, needs to be a linguistic or even visual image, but I'm sure it often gets linked up with words or pictures or both. And I also think the whole process, where music provokes a mental image, and that in turn creates a feeling in your body, that to me is exactly how emotions work. And I think that's why everyone intuits a close connection between music and emotions. But I'll leave you to look up the neuroscience about that, or maybe I'll do a later episode about it. Now, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this abstract definition of music, but it really is a kind of miracle that music moves us somehow using just two ingredients, sound and time. And if you think about each of these things, one of them, sound, to me at least, feels like a pretty concrete and ordinary thing. I get a lot of my information about the things and happenings in the world around me from sound. But the other piece, time, feels really abstract and mysterious. 
it's constantly changing how quickly it goes by. It's almost a spooky other world when I really think about it. And then you put them together and you've got an experience of this abstract, numinous time transmogrified into something concrete that you can literally feel in your body by sound. Now, if that doesn't fill you with wonder, I don't know if anything can. Just what music is goes deeper than just another thing in the world that makes you feel emotions. Music operates on a cosmic, platonic level, like mathematics. And also like mathematics, that level is in principle available to anyone. Learning to access that level might not make you rich and famous, but it will make life sublimely worth living. Okay, so we've defined music as having two essential ingredients, sound and time. Which one should we explore first? Well, my piano teacher asked me one time, what is the most important part of music? He had the air of a Zen master, so I ventured a sort of mystical, profound-seeming answer like, uh, the space in between the notes? Nope. It wasn't a trick question, it's the rhythm. Because, he said, it doesn't matter how slow you take it, when you make the rhythm really exact, then you just know how the music goes. What he meant was that, in the kind of music he was teaching anyway, the rhythm is the thing that creates a sense of movement and flow which is what stretches or compresses the experience of time for anyone in the music. And if you, the pianist, don't get that idiosyncratic flow of the piece you're playing right, then you're not really making music. Some years later, I saw a documentary, I think it was on PBS, about Daniel Levitin, famous author of This Is Your Brain on Music and The World in Six Songs, which are good, interesting reads, by the way, and some experiments he was running at McGill where they used technology to capture tons of data about the physics of a pianist's performance of a piece, and then they compared it to a computer's rendition of the same piece to try to figure out a scientific description of the idea of musical expression. You know, what physically accounts for the expressiveness we intuitively recognize in a musician's performance. And it turned out the answer was just tiny little variations in the exact timing of the notes. Some notes were given a tiny bit longer, some notes were a tiny bit shorter than the computer's performance, but it all came down to timing, as so many things in life, am I right? And if you remember that music is sound in time, or time defined by sound, then it makes sense to think about perceiving music as not just an experience in time, but an experience of time. And philosophically, that's pretty much how I think of the experience of music. It's playing around in virtual time. By the way, I got the idea of music as virtual time from Suzanne K. Langer's book, Problems of Art, which I also recommend if you enjoy reading the philosophy of aesthetics, and why wouldn't you? So with all that in mind, we're going to start by playing a very simple game, to create musical time and see how that actually feels. It's going to work like this. I'll do three taps on my drum, and you answer with one tap on whatever you have handy. You can tap your leg, your desk, someone else's head, whatever you like, but just try to give your tap some character like you're the triangle player in the orchestra with one super important tap in the whole symphony. Here's an example. So that ding was where your tap would go. Okay, and we'll just go back and forth. I'll put the ding in for the first couple, and then you keep going without help from the dings. Pretty easy, right? So let's make it a bit more challenging. This time, I'm only going to play my taps the first two times, and then I'll drop out completely. Your job is to keep placing your taps exactly where they would go if my taps had kept sounding. Try it. Now, I'll bet that even if you had a bit more trouble with that little exercise, you still had a pretty good idea of how much space to keep in between your taps. How did you do it? What did it feel like? What's the phenomenology of this game? Well, if you pay close attention to what your mind and body are doing automatically to give you the right timing for your taps, you might notice that it's sort of like you can hear my taps continuing in your own mind 
even after I've dropped out and they're not actually sounding in the real world. Try the game one more time and see if you can notice these virtual taps that you can maybe not hear but feel in your body somehow even after my taps are no longer sounding. Now I'd bet money that you were probably more accurate that second time, and not just because it was the second time and you'd done it once before. What you're feeling when you experience those virtual taps is like a sense of pulse. And pretty much everyone, whether or not they think they quote, have rhythm, can feel it because it's something our brains can just do. And by the way, we're not unique in this. Any animal that needs good timing and movement coordination, like to hunt or escape from a hunter, needs a brain that can do this virtual pulse kind of thing. Our brains can do this automatically, and the feeling of it sort of reverberates in our body as a kind of feeling of movement. And this is why we can tap our feet, clap along, and even dance to music without much effort, sometimes without even noticing. I'm not much of a dancer myself, but growing up in Puerto Rico, I've seen many people dancing completely absent-mindedly, yet amazingly deftly, to any music in their vicinity. So the first step in learning to listen and really participate in the music you listen to is to explicitly pay attention to this feeling of pulse established by sound and time. The technical term for this sense of pulse is beat. This term can get confusing because it's commonly used in senses that don't quite match with the pulse we established in our little game just now. For instance, in hip-hop style music, the beat is usually a repeating cycle of complex and tightly interlocking percussion parts over which rapping or singing would happen. And inasmuch as the hip-hop beat establishes a constant frame of reference for time's movement in the song, it's related to the simple technical sense of beat. But for the purposes of my lessons, I'm always going to use the term beat to refer to the evenly spaced pulses that the music makes you feel. So each of our taps in the game we just played would be a beat, and the overall sense of time created by the spacing of each of those beats you can think of as capital B, the beat, established by the game. And now that we know what the beat is and how it feels to make it, let's think about what the beat can do for us in actual music. You should notice that the beat is constant and relatively unchanging, so it can act as a frame of reference. It's sort of like a canvas for a painting. You make a painting or drawing by putting colors or lines on the canvas, and those things contrasting with the canvas's surface create the illusion of shapes and even a whole three-dimensional space, all framed within the canvas itself. So we're going to listen to a sampling of what sorts of canvases music has available for us. I've got several short clips, and as you listen to each one, you can try tapping along to whatever beat you feel from the music, but the important thing is to be really aware and pay close attention to the feeling of the beat in your mind and body as you listen. And you might even be able to notice what particular sounds, like what kinds of instruments, are helping your brain establish the beat. The first clip is an Irish jig. Interesting for many reasons, but what you should notice, while you find and attend to the beat, is how this song establishes the beat by giving extra emphasis on notes that land at the same time as a beat. So the song has many notes in it, but the ones that land, what musicians call, on the beat, are played with a little more weight, which should give you some help in finding and feeling the beat. So that was an example of folk dance music, and the second clip you might not associate with either folk or dance music, but it also will do something to make the beat very, very obvious. Have a listen. Together. 
Did you notice how the drums were kind of relentlessly beating us over the head with the beat? Funny thing to do when the words would otherwise seem so tender and sweet. Hmm. So those are examples of musical styles that tend to make the beat easy to feel, if not outright explicit, by having an instrument just play the darn thing the whole time. And that's not an accident. These styles are designed to make the beat as compelling to your body as possible and get you to either actually move or to at least have an internal sensation of moving and maybe even an accompanying endorphin release. But then there are musical styles and techniques that have a more subtle relationship with the beat. This next clip is a jazz combo that might start out sounding a bit chaotic, with the guitar, drums, and bass each doing her own thing until, at least to my ear, the saxophone coming in with the tune seems to get them all to lock in together. Even when the saxophone comes in, it can still be tricky to lock onto and keep following the beat here because none of the instruments seems to want to help you find the beat. If anything, they seem to be almost obscuring the beat with their rhythmic complexities, so all you get is an implied as opposed to sounded beat. The next clip seems to start out giving you an explicit beat, but listen for the moments where it too tries to trip you up with unexpected long notes and silences. So again, no surprise that jazz and classical styles aren't as popular as dance, folk, and pop music. And again, jazz and classical's reputation for being sophisticated and snobby in pretty much equal measure is kind of by design, right down to how they work with the beat. And if you want to get so sophisticated with the beat that it's downright spiritual, why not just do away with the beat altogether? That was a shakuhachi, a Japanese bamboo flute, uh, with, uh, with a koto, which is a type of Japanese zither, and bells, playing so slowly that any beats you tried to impose would be spaced so far apart that it wouldn't really make sense. This music stretches time so much that it's like the whole song becomes one long moment. It's a great technique for any music that's meant to make you feel meditative or spiritual, like this medieval hymn followed by a Persian classical improvisation. Listening to songs like these that don't really have a beat at all can be a great and challenging meditation exercise. If nothing else, they can make really palpable just how hard it is to hold your attention on to something 
for that one long moment. So now that we know the importance of our canvas, the beat, let's look at what kinds of things we can put inside it. We're going to play another simple echoing game. I'll tap out a short little pattern on my drum, and then you answer by tapping or clapping the same thing back to me. So for example, if I play this, you would answer. Try your best to make your pattern have exactly the same timing as mine. We'll go back and forth like this, and I'll do a different pattern each time. Don't think too much, just listen and repeat back what you hear. So these patterns we just did are clearly different from a technical beat because the taps weren't evenly spaced. Some were quicker, some were slower. And of course, the patterns didn't stay constant. I did a different one each time. So clearly, this is not simply the beat, but you should have felt a beat being established nonetheless. It was just in the background. I want to play this game again, but this time I'm going to have my metronome of sorts actually play the beat the whole time so you can hear and feel how the taps we do in the game fit inside the beat and sort of play against it. Here's the beat. And here's the game. Try to echo each pattern while keeping a little of your attention on the beat at the same time. Did you notice when our taps landed on the beat, and when they were quicker than the beat, and so had to land in between beats? It's those little variances between the beat and our taps that create the contrast between the pattern, which is our taps, and the background, which is the beat, and sort of turn our taps into discernible shapes. Just like, you know when you're watching a video of a skilled cartoonist, and it starts out with just the blank piece of paper, and then she draws a black line over here, and another curvy thing over there, and by the third or fourth line she draws, the dark lines combine with the very background that they're outlining, and it just becomes a whole shape of the cartoon character. It's like that. And so, to get you to feel the blending of the pattern and the beat, you're going to do both the canvas and the lines at the same time. Here's how it's going to work. First, I want you to tap the beat with me, and at the same time, we're going to say a word that fits each tap which is also the beat, and that word is short. So it's like this. Join in with me when you're ready. Short, 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 short. Okay, so that's our beat, and it gets the word short. Now, I want you to keep tapping and saying the shorts, and I'm going to add something on top of it using the magic of recording software. Don't get distracted, but see if you can figure out what I added while still maintaining your beat of shorts, which will be played by the kick drum sound. So listen for that. Aha! We added some longs to our shorts. Now comes the hard part. Your hands are going to tap the beat, so they'll still be doing the shorts. But you're going to say the longs. It'll help to remember that there's a constant ratio going on between the longs and the shorts here. Each long lasts for two shorts, so it kind of stretches across two beats. And I'll be doing both with you, so just try to split and maintain your attention on the beat for your hands and the longs for your words. Ready? Do this with your hands while you say the longs with me. Long, long. 
Okay, now if that was a challenge, maybe this will be easier, or vice versa. Now you're going to again have your hands tapping the beat, but your word is going to be shorter. It'll sound like this. Shorter, 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 shorter. So try it with me. Remember, you're tapping the beat with your hands, and that's going to be the kick drum, and you're saying the word shorter with the bongos. Shorter, 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 shorter. All right, one last one before it gets really challenging. Your hands tap the beat, your word is now two words, even shorter, like this. Even shorter, even shorter, even shorter, even shorter. Try it out. Here we go. Even shorter, 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 even shorter. Now the challenge. Your hands finally get to do something different. Your hands are going to do the longs this time. And to make sure they actually last the full length of the two beats, they're not going to tap, because if you tapped, then it would just sound like another short sound. Instead, they're going to slide across whatever surface you were tapping. So for example, if I was tapping my drum before, when I do the longs, I'm going to slide my hand across the top of the drum, like in slow motion, slow enough to last the full two beats, like this. It fits with the word. Long, long. So that's what your hands are going to be doing. And then the words that you're going to be saying, you get to choose. You can either do the shorters or the even shorters. And while you're doing that, I'm going to have all four sounds playing at the same time. So remember to listen for the vibraphone sound to match with your hands. And then if you chose the shorters, that'll be the bongo sounds. And if you chose the even shorters, that's going to be the little hi-hat taps. And remember, the beat is going to be going the whole time. So try to keep your attention on the two things that you're going to be doing, as well as the beat, all at the same time. Here we go. Now we could keep taking this exercise to more and more challenging variations if we wanted to. For example, you could uh, tap the shorters with your left hand, tap the even shorters with your right hand, uh, tap the beat with your foot, and then say the longs all at the same time, but I'll leave you to explore that at your leisure. Right now, we need to put a name to this thing we just did. So you might have noticed that each different word fit against the beat in a constant and discernible ratio. And to the extent that they were constant, each different type of word created sort of like mini-beats. So the longs were a ratio of one long for two beats, so that's one to two. Then shorts were one for one because the shorts were just the beat. Then shorters were two to one because there were two syllables for every beat. And the even shorters, that's even shorter, one, two, three, four, that's four syllables for every beat. And these are just the most common, what musicians call, subdivisions of the beat. And the way I like to think of them is, uh, it's like you're looking at a big, a big design, big visual design, um, that's actually created by fractals. And fractals are the kind of thing where, when you zoom in on the big shape, you find that it's actually composed of a bunch of even smaller versions of that shape, and then each one of those is composed of even smaller versions of that shape, etc., etc. And then when you zoom back out uh, to the bigger picture, you, you have the sense that all those smaller, self-similar patterns are latent all inside this big one. And so these subdivisions of the beat are the basic building blocks of, technical term here, rhythm. When you make a sequence or pattern using different ones of these subdivisions of the beat, in other words, longs and shorts, you've made rhythm. And these patterns of long and short are the way you manipulate the flow of time in your music. 
So now you know why I chose those particular words for that exercise, because rhythm just is made up of longs and shorts. Long and short compared to what, you ask? Well, it would have to be the constant frame of reference, the beat. And that may seem really obvious, but it's actually the key to really mastering rhythm, always being strongly aware of the beat while you're performing the rhythm. So let's try that now. I'm going to choose some subdivisions or rhythms from our exercise earlier and compose, not a profound composition, but still, compose a rhythm for us to play and say together. And by the way, we often refer to each of those sub ratio subdivisions, you know, like even shorter and long, as a rhythm itself. So you might call a whole string of them a rhythm, or you might call each individual one a rhythm. It's a pretty flexible word. Okay, so here's what I came up with. Long, shorter, shorter. I just made a sequence by starting with the long sound and then putting two shorters right after it. So try tapping and saying it with me, just like I did. We'll just repeat it several times so you can get the feel of it. And remember to slide across the surface with your hands for the long and then tap for the shorts. Long, shorter, shorter, long, shorter, shorter, long, shorter, shorter, long, shorter, shorter. Now I want to make things more interesting by making another short little sequence, putting it together with the first one, and make the whole thing like a full rhythm sentence. It's going to go like this. Long, shorter, shorter, short, shorter, short. So I just added another short, then a pause, and then a shorter short at the end to make the full rhythm sentence. So play and say it a couple times with me now to get the feel of it. Here we go. Long, shorter, shorter, short, shorter, short. Long, shorter, shorter, short, shorter, short. Long, shorter, shorter, short, shorter, short. Now, I like that rhythm for a couple reasons. It has two parts. The first one starts out with a long sound and then kind of rushes up all the way to the pause. And then that last little shorter short was like a little tag ending, like an amen. <laughs> and that asymmetrical structure makes it feel just a little bit like natural speech, which might make you think of the importance of rhythm for great speeches and orators and actors, right? But for our purposes, the other reason I like this rhythm is I want you to think about that pause right before the amen. Listen to the rhythm again. This time, I'm going to play it with the metronome, so you'll hear the beat at the same time. Did you notice there was a beat during the pause? But the rhythm left that beat empty of sound. Well, except for the metronome, but... Without the metronome, it would just be silence. And even when we were playing the rhythm without the metronome, you should have felt the beat there, even though there was no tap or sound on it from the rhythm. And that silence is rhythm's equivalent of using negative space in a drawing. So if we think like Taoists for a minute, uh, they like to point out that the only reason a cup or a bowl, for example, is useful is because it's mostly empty space. They love the empty space. And in a way, sound is actually kind of paradigmatic of the idea that when something comes into existence, this is the Taoist idea, whenever anything comes into existence, it necessarily brings its own opposite into existence at the same time. And sound only exists by virtue of being surrounded by silence. Cliché? Yes. Profound? Also yes. So just as our taps, which make sound, can subdivide the beat and be rhythms, silences can do the same thing. And we call them special types of rhythms. Musicians call them rests. So if we were to describe the rhythm I composed, just listing the rhythms in order, we would just have to add a new word and say the rhythms are long, shorter, shorter, short, rest, shorter, short. And when you're playing a rhythm that has rests in it, a great way to ensure that you give each rest its full length is to think of it as making a sound only in your mind. So I actually say the word rest in my mind when I'm playing this rhythm. 
And another thing to keep in mind is that rests can subdivide the same way our words did, but they can show up anywhere and add some spice to a rhythm. So for example, I could take a rather boring rhythm like shorter, 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 short, shorter, 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 short, choose a few of those shorts, the first syllable in shorter, but leaving the ter part in, and I get this. Shorter, shorter, ter short, shorter, ter, ter short. Much more interesting, and yet all I did was throw in some well-chosen rests. Okay, so now we're ready to put all this stuff about rhythm together into a system you can actually use. You may have heard of Do, Re, Mi, which is a system that names pitches, think of the keys on a keyboard, as these different nonsense syllables, not that they're silly, just that they don't mean anything in everyday speech. So for example, la-di-da would be nonsense syllables. Just FYI, that system for pitches is called solfege, and we'll get into it later. But I only mention it now because there is actually a similar thing we can do with rhythms, where each different rhythm or subdivision type, uh, like words from our subdivision, gets a unique name made up of syllables that don't mean anything outside the rhythm context, and so we call them rhythm syllables. But for rhythm, it's actually even more useful than for pitches because the names we choose for rhythm can actually make us literally say or perform the rhythm itself just by saying its name. So there are many variations around the world of this rhythm syllables idea in many different music traditions. But the one I like to use names the beat as ta. So if your rhythm starts out with four taps on all on the beat, then it would be ta, 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 ta. And then for a long note that stretches across two beats, just keep the ah sound going through the next beat. And it would be ta. Pretty intuitive. Then, if you want some shorter notes, you call them ta-di. So that would line up with our shorter, ta-di. And the rhythm I composed earlier would go like this. Ta, ta-di, ta-di, ta, ta-di, ta. And I actually said the word rest in my mind there. So finally, for now, if you want even shorter notes, you would say takadimi, and that's four syllables, so that matches up with our even shorters, right? So it goes takadimi, and since they go pretty fast because they all have to fit in one beat, it goes takadimi. All right, so that's our system for rhythms and uh, the basic options for rhythm syllables along with their corresponding rests, and each rhythm syllable actually has a corresponding rest. It can always be replaced by a rest whenever you feel like, uh, although that can get very tricky when you're using a lot of takadimis and then just throwing one rest in there or something like that. But um, right now, I want to give you an example of how we might use this system and how you're going to use this system for doing your homework assignment. Um, I'm going to make a rhythm. It's going to be eight beats long, and uh, Last time I started with a long note, so this time I'll start with some even shorter notes. So remember those were the takadimis. So first I'll choose a takadimi for my first beat, and then in the second beat I'm going to put a tadi, and then for the third beat I'll do another takadimi for good measure, and then on the fourth beat I'm going to have a ta. So the first four beats of my rhythm that I'm composing right now will go like this. Takadimi tadi, takadimi ta. And notice that I'm tapping the beat softly on my drum as I'm speaking the rhythm. That's going to be part of the assignment. Okay, so now for the second, for the next four beats, I've got my first four beats already. Now I'm going to do something a little more complicated than you'll need to do when you make up your own. Um, I'm going to have another takadimi for the fifth beat, but I'm going to replace the first two syllables in that takadimi, so the taka part. I'm going to replace that with a rest that's going to last as long as the takas, and I'm going to say aloud just the dimis. I'm going to leave the dimis in and take the takas out. So that's going to be complicated, but you'll hear what it sounds like when I play it. And then after that, I'll put another tadi, and I'm going to end with a long ta. So here's the second half. Dimi tadi ta. And my full rhythm composition is going to go like this. And what I did for that rest was I said the taka part in my mind and I said the dimi part out loud. So I, it's like I performed the whole takadimi, but turned the first half of it into a rest. So that's going to be your first homework assignment. You have to make up your own 8-beat rhythm pattern 
And then once you've chosen uh, and filled in all the beats with rhythms that you've chosen, then you have to practice saying it while at the same time tapping the beat with your hands, just like I did on my drum. And you want to focus on making the rhythm that you say fit really precisely to the beat. And of course, make your beats as even as possible. So like my piano teacher always said, it doesn't matter how slow you make the beat, the important thing is to know and feel precisely how the rhythm fits in against it. Okay, so now I'm going to review the time concepts we've explored so far in this lesson, and then I'll give you a couple other assignments. Now obviously I'm not going to be able to tell whether you actually do your homework, so to that extent it is optional. But I will tell you that if you do spend some time trying these activities, you may be surprised at how quickly you make progress in feeling and playing rhythm, and they really don't take very much time. So to review what we've discovered about musical time, the beat is an underlying sense of pulse that acts as a frame of reference or a canvas uh, for the shapes and patterns made by long and short sounds and silences, which we call rhythms, or the rhythm. And the beat doesn't need to actually make sound for you to feel it, but if you want your music to really get you moving, some instrument will probably have the important job of making the beat as explicit and compelling as possible. Uh, if you want your music to have a more intellectual character, you might have the sounds do things to obscure the beat, or to include lots of surprising rhythms, especially silences, uh, to really keep your brain, as opposed to your body, on its toes. And then you can free yourself of the beat entirely if you want your music to help contemplate the nature of ineffable things. Rhythm manipulates the flow of time moment by moment as it plays against the beat with long and short sounds and silences. Our brains seem to like nice, neat ratios, just ask Pythagoras, so the most common rhythm subdivisions, or just rhythms if you like, divide or stretch across the beat in equal pieces. Make a sequence or pattern of these rhythms, and you're playing around in virtual time, i.e. making music. The most basic rhythm syllables are ta, which lines up with the beat, ta, which is the one, the long one that stretches across two beats, ta-di, which divides the beat in two equal pieces, and takadimi, which divides it into four. Each of these rhythms, and even the syllables inside them, like ta in ta-di, can be turned into a rest, which means it just gets turned into a silence for its length. With just these few options, ta, ta-a, ta-di, takadimi, and their corresponding rests, combinations that make different rhythm statements are seemingly endless. So one homework assignment is for you to make up your own rhythm sequence that's eight beats long. I suggest keeping things simple and not trying to get too fancy with rests, but definitely try to make something interesting. Then practice actually saying the rhythm you made up while tapping a beat with your hands. Make the beat as slow as you need to, just make sure the rhythms you speak fit against it the way they're supposed to. Your second homework assignment is just to find a recording of a song you enjoy and pay close attention to the beat all the way through. If you notice the song makes it easy to find the beat, look for another song also that's more of a challenge, so that you have to do a little bit more work to keep feeling the beat. And then finally, your last homework assignment is, I'm going to play a little tune right now, which you might recognize. Your job is to try to figure out just from listening to this melody what all its rhythm syllables are. I'll give you this one hint. It starts with a toddy. Okay, here's the tune for you to figure out the rhythm. And by the way, figuring out the music notation from just hearing a, a music is called transcribing. So next time, I'll give you the answer to, the, to this transcribing exercise. And I hope you've enjoyed your first lesson on musical time. We'll explore some even more complex things about how time works in music in the second lesson. And before I go, I just want to tell you where I got all my music clips, uh, so that just in case you wanted to hear the full the full tracks and, and maybe even look up the whole album, um, you'll be able to do that. So the first clip, which was the Irish jig, was a jig called Jerry's Beaver Hat. It was performed by Brian Conway, and other artists on the track were Andy McGann, Pat Mangan, and John Doyle. And it's from a Smithsonian Folkways recording uh, 
album called First Through the Gate. So it's an album of uh, Irish fiddle music, and it's a really great album. And then the second clip was called Happy Together by the Turtles, the, uh, the pop rock band from the 60s. Uh, and it's from their 1967 album, Happy Together. The, uh, the jazz clip was a uh, track called Pedal Points, and it's from an album called Imagine That by a wonderful jazz guitarist named Don Thompson. Uh, that's D-A-W-N, uh, Don Thompson uh, and her quintet. And then the fourth clip was the, uh, the classical one, and that was the second movement from C.P.E. Bach's uh, Symphonia in G, and it's from an album called C.P.E. Bach, Hamburg Sinfonias, numbers one to six, and the artists there were uh, Christian Benda leading Capella Istropolitana. And then the fifth clip was the uh, Japanese flute and koto and, um, and bells music. That was a, a tune called Edo no Uta, and it's from an album called Japan, Traditional Vocal and Instrumental Music by the, uh, by the group Ensemble Nipponia. Then the, uh, what is it, the sixth clip was uh, from, was a track called O Pastor Animarum. That was a, a hymn written by and composed by Hildegard von Bingen from an album called Hildegard von Bingen, Heavenly Revelations. And that was the Oxford Camerata led by Jeremy Summerlee. Um, and then the last clip was from another Smithsonian Folkways Recordings album, uh, called the Dust Ga Systems, and the track was called Avaz of Bayata Esfahan, and the word Avaz is a um, is a type of it's sort of like an Indian raga. It's like the uh, the scale and the collection of uh, melodic patterns that the improviser would build improvisations around in Persian classical music. And the artist there was Mohammed Haydari. So if you enjoyed any of those tracks, please look them up and buy the albums to support all these uh, great artists. All right, so that's it for me. Um, Happy listening, and uh, I'll catch you next time.